Cheeseburger Podcast, where we go behind the scenes in the cheese world to chat with the people making, selling, or distributing your favorite specialty food products. I'm your host, Janae Muha, certified cheese professional, longtime cheesemonger, and producer advocate. We're starting with big stuff right away this year on the podcast with the one and only Andy Hatch from Uplands Cheese in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. Andy is widely celebrated as being one of the best cheesemakers in the country, with his cheese, Pleasant Ridge Reserve, being one of the most awarded cheeses in the United States. His cheesemaking model differs from many makers by being totally seasonal and pasture-based, so it stands as a blueprint for sustainable agriculture. Grab a beverage and settle in as Andy walks us through his life in cheese, what the last two years have looked like for him, what keeps him inspired, and industry movements he's keeping his eye on. So let's start with introducing yourself. And I actually want to know about your path to cheese. Like, how did you even become a cheesemaker to begin with? So how did all of that start? Okay. Well, first things first, I'm Andy Hatch. I'm the owner and cheesemaker of Uplands Cheese in uh, Dodgeville, Wisconsin. And uh, second things second, uh, cheesemaking, I came into it sort of secondarily. I wasn't born into it, which is unusual in Wisconsin. Most of the uh, businesses here are, you know, family legacy businesses on the farming side and the cheesemaking side. My my parents didn't milk cows uh, or make cheese. Uh, my father's a lawyer, my mother's a milliner, and I was raised in the eastern side of the state above Milwaukee on Lake Michigan and had kind of a, you know, I, I grew up in town and had like a town kid's pastoral fantasy as a, as a teenager and uh, went to the school UW-Madison for um, dairy science and thought I wanted to um, milk cows. And I kind of, a, you know, I wasn't gonna inherit a farm. And so I was, I was working on farms and, you know, as a 20 year old realizing like, this is not gonna be easy. And I thought instead that maybe I'd have an academic career in agriculture. So I started working for a corn breeder and um, yeah, got interested, you know, I, I, I like, making things with my hands, but I also, I like lab work and I like learning. And I thought, well, maybe this is more realistic. Um, The corn breeder, the guy in Wisconsin, uh, Walter Goldstein, uh, had married a Norwegian woman from a cheesemaking family. And while I was working for Walter, his elderly father-in-law died back in Norway and left his mother-in-law, this uh, little old Norwegian woman named Uni, kind of alone on the side of a fjord on this farm and you know they were trying to figure out how to help her and and you know me being like a little what 22 year old was like ooh, ooh you know send me send me so they sent me over to uh norway to help uni and that was the first cheese making i did was um milking goats making goat cheese on, on the side of this fjord and uh so romantic you know yes spectacular scenery wonderful woman really interesting cheese, it ticked all those boxes, but um, it also, for me, clicked in, in that it kind of married the, 
you know, my fascination with learning and tinkering in a lab-like setting with actually, you know, making things with your hands and being outside. Uh, and then the second important way it clicked in, in the bigger sense is that I could see that back home it was, well, I didn't see this at that point, but I could see in general that it was a way for a kid like me to get into farming because, you know, changes the financial dimension of it, adding value to that milk. Now, instead of trying to sell a commodity, you're selling uh, something, you know, over which you can control the price. And um, So uh, I kind of fell in love with it then. And I spent a couple of years at, at that point in, in Europe. I stayed over there for several years and had not intended to come back. I was fairly settled in Germany and got the phone call out of the movies. Your father's gonna die, get on the next plane home. So I rushed home and, and he didn't die, but uh, I felt like I needed to stay closer to home, help him recover. And uh, that's when I met Caitlin. And that's when I met um, the Gingriches here at, at Uplands. And uh, so you have to, have a license to be a cheesemaker in Wisconsin, only state that requires it. And so they put you through your paces. Uh, you have to take classes, serve apprenticeship hours, and ultimately take a test. And this, I worked for a couple of different cheesemakers uh, around Wisconsin and, and Uplands was the last apprenticeship I did. And I'm still here sitting in the same <laughs> office. Uh, 15 years, 16 years later. I love that. I've actually never heard that entire story and I've read like a ton of articles about you. So I love that you just ran off to Norway to go make cheese. That's wonderful. <laughs> I don't tell that. That's the long version. You got the deep cut. I don't, I don't usually tell that story. Um, I don't know. It's alternatingly. Sometimes it seems boring. Sometimes it seems a little too fanciful, but, um, I'm all for fanciful, you know, yeah. like, I feel like the way that people get into cheese is kind of fanciful a lot. So it is kind of a nice, I don't know. I like it. I think it's fun. Oh, romance matters. I mean, if you, you know, you, you fall in love with something, you remember why. And, um, but I do have to say, you know, I'm, I love where I am, Southern Wisconsin. I'm not sure there's anywhere else in the world I'd rather be making cheese. I, I I went to Europe with a friend and and he stayed. And so it's been interesting to watch. You know, we we had originally intended to come back here, you know, to, to farm together, either over there or here. And um, you know, he, he fell in love with an Austrian girl. He's still farming in Austria. But uh, the things that, that I've been able to accomplish here, not that I'm sitting on top of a mountain or anything, but to, to, to be able to buy a, a farm and a, and a cheese business, uh, he, can't, he can't do that in Austria. It, it's, it's too difficult, too expensive over there to just kind of show up as an apprentice and work your way in to ownership. Um, right. I appreciate that about about where I am and uh, it's also a lot of fun being a cheesemaker in Wisconsin. 
So let's talk about that though. If uh, working with the Gingriches obviously made an impression on you, what was it about Uplands that uh, made you want to stay and kind of take over when they decided to retire? To begin with, you know, the, it's a dairy farm and a cheese business. And I wanted to do both um, for, you know, I, I think it's the most interesting way to most appealing way to make cheese. And then also, you know, I wanted to live and raise my family on a, on a dairy farm. Uh, That's the most, probably the most important basic criteria. Um, I love uh, the area. So we're in the, as you know, Southwest part of the state. I grew up in this kind of Southeast part of the state, different. Uh, so I'm not where I grew up, which sometimes I regret, but I'm close enough. And uh, I love the, uh, this corner of the state. And um, it was an interesting question, you know, beyond that, it was, uh, we, we spent years talking about, you know, going to the bank and trying to borrow a lot of money to buy an existing business or scraping together our nickels and dimes and trying to start from scratch by ourselves on a shoestring. And, um, you know, pros and cons to both approaches. Um, I honestly, it, it, it's a lot harder to go from zero to one than it is to go from one to two. And um, I think I'm better suited, Caitlin as well, better suited to um, growing something and refining it and improving it than uh, starting from scratch. Yeah, we, we, we attempted in either way. And ultimately um, the timing here was, was lucky. And, uh, you know, we had a local bank that was willing to take a chance on us. We didn't show up with any money. We didn't have family money or, you know, invest angel investors or anything. So we really had to convince um, the local bankers to, you know, make a character loan, take a chance on us. And um, I actually just now was in the uh, office of that, that same banker just this afternoon, um, buying an, another piece of uh, property next door. Not a big one. I mean, we're not sitting on top of a, a mountain or a gold mine or anything, but um, we're paying that guy's trust back. And we just gave him another loan. So the circumstances here were, were uh, lucky timing wise. And uh, with the Gingriches and Patnods, and then also with meeting Scott and Liana, who, uh, as you know, we all own the farm together with and, and run it together with. So um, lucky. And then, you know, there's been luck laced all the way through the 20 year history of, of Uplands. And um, it seemed like uh, walking away from it to try to, to start something else when really I would just try to replicate what they had here more or less seemed um, redundant and wasteful it may not be much of a mountain but i think it's a pretty big mountain for the driftless region what you're sitting on <laughs> Rich <top>. no <laughs> it's no pacific um, northwest mountain but it's definitely something to get up there yeah, but this time of year it, it feels like it i mean there's nothing higher for 25 miles to the north and west and we just we take that 
winter wind right in the face. That's yeah. And are the cows still out on the pasture? You keep them out all year round, right? Yes, they're out all year round. And um, they, uh, they look great. They love this. It's 25 out right now. Um, it's really, it's one wonderful cow weather. They put on a thicker coat in the winter and they're pregnant. So they're eating more and they eat a little more even to stay warm. Um, and they're still being rotated through um, pastures, mostly, you know, to distribute fertility. Um, but the, uh, the ground's frozen. And so you can, you know, move them according to where you need to put fertility, but also get them out of the wind if there's a storm, get them into the trees, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, they stay somewhat active, but they're, we're all kind of on vacation time now. It's like, you know, we don't go get them till eight in the morning. Sometimes we don't go get them till nine in the morning. And it's like, we have a second cup of coffee. They, you know, lie around a little more. It's, everybody enjoys the break. Um, but they, they had a good year. They worked hard this year. They were, they were grazing until mid-December again, just like last year. It was a remarkable season. That's pretty wild. Well, let's talk about the last two years. Since your business model is a little bit different than um, a lot of other cheesemakers with being completely seasonal, how has COVID kind of affected how you do business and how has anything changed in that respect? Hmm. Well, uh, the core of our business hasn't changed and, and that looked lucky or fortuitous or smart you know our supply chain is so tight it's just you know our own cows pastures we buy in some grain and then cultures rent its salt so um you know pr production wise and, and we had a couple of good grazing seasons thank god i mean to layer a drought or something on top of all this would have been really painful uh you know present Northwestern company acknowledged. I really feel for the farmers out there. Um, so production wise, uh, we had a good couple of years. Cows milked really well. Uh, pastures were in great shape. Um, that end of things didn't change uh, all that much. Sales wise, um, and I think I'm probably repeating myself from when we talked last year, we saw what almost everybody saw restaurants dropped away, independent cheese shops, uh, were all over the place, depending, I think, you know, did they have parking? Did they have good takeout mail order prepared food it, all over the place? Um, and, uh, some of the grocery stores, you know, whole foods did really well. And, um, our website, which has never been something we've put a lot of energy into, it's been kind of incidental, um, picked up. So I think that was the normal pattern, right, for a lot of people. And um, we uh, rode the wave and ended up in decent shape both last year and again this year. So, you know, no major disruptions on the production side. Sales were skewed, you know, they, but the net was, um, good we you know we we sold 
all the cheese we made, um, which is all we can do, you know. Uh, so it felt um, satisfactory, nervy, obviously, and uh, we came through on paper in pretty good shape. Um, we took some more scars this year, just personnel-wise. Um, it was a really difficult year. Um, a lot of family health issues, employee health issues. Um, so it was exhausting in, in that way, but um, the business has held together uh, pretty well. And so again, luck, I'll, you know, I'll take it when I can get it. Um, so number one, some luck. Number two, I think, I don't want to sound smug about it, but you know, having a tight little supply chain, there are times when it looks good. And I think we've benefited from that. Number three, uh, we have a really good group of employees. There are only about half a dozen of them, but rock solid, stayed with us the whole time, um, stayed committed to each other in terms of keep trying to keep each other safe. And so, um, and then as far as customers, we are, our customers supported us. You know, those who were in a position to buy and sell a lot of cheese did, did it. Um, so yeah, all of that made me feel lucky. Um, so I, I think we avoided some of the, um, worst parts of the experience for other businesses like us, which would be what supply chain disruption, can't get enough employees and their customers stop buying cheese. I mean, I think that uh, because of your seasonality too, like people who work there obviously know that it's a certain time of year where work is going to be happening. So I think that that also helps too, that it's kind of like ingrained in the business model. Um, whereas a lot of places I think are having a lot of, I know my husband for one working for a distributor, he's having a lot of issues finding people to work for them. And, you know, it's just getting harder and harder. You saw that headline today that, in November, the country set a record for the amount of people who quit their jobs. Well, I think it was a record at least for the last couple of decades, maybe since they started keeping track. Well, people are tired of being treated unfairly <laughs> and disposable. So yeah, it's uh, you have to start paying people and treating people well to get them to stick around. And if they do stick around, that means you're doing something really well. So Uplands makes two cheeses a year and that's it. Um, what keeps you excited and engaged to make those two cheeses? Like, is that something that like lives in your life that you just like that stability or is it just something that you've come to terms with and you're, cause most of the cheesemakers I know like to tinker and they like to make like a million new things and whatnot. And so like, you know, if you're 15 years into this, like what is keeping you still really excited about Pleasant Ridge and Rush Creek? Mm. Well, uh, good question. Um, I think particularly with seasonal raw milk cheese, but really with most cheese, certainly uh, interesting cheese, it's, it changes all the time. So, um, you know, I'm turned on by variety and learning new things, but I can find, I, I find that kind of, um, challenge and satisfaction within these two cheeses. They are always different. And like I said, I think that's particularly true when it's 
seasonal and it's particularly true with raw milk and it's particularly true with natural rinds. We're not making the same cheeses over and over again. You know, we're making new cheese every time. And uh, so, you know, and, and the two cheeses themselves are so polar opposite in the kind of, well, technically, but just the mental approach, everything about them. Um, and so, you know, between the Pleasant Ridge season, the Rush Creek season, the holiday shipping season, and then hibernation, it, it, it's always, there's re constant renewal. And, um, you know, each season wears you down by the end, but the, the knowing that you're about to turn a corner into something new, just that uh, change is, is stimulating and energizing. And um, so I think both of those things come into play. You know, it, number one, it's a matter of refinement, which is just a different kind of learning and self-improvement, a matter of refinement as opposed to, you know, redesign or, or starting at square one every time, um, which I'm probably more suited to. Uh, and then number two, on an annual, you know, our, our seasonality of what we do here is such that it, you do have uh, change all the time. Or, you know, every couple of months, your life is completely different. Uh, I think making, you know, if we were making the two cheeses constantly side by side, 12 months a year, that would be an entirely different experience. And that might, I might go a little numb from that. It would be pretty hard to get me up right now to make Rush Creek, to be honest. Like I've had my fill and, um, you know, I won't do it again for 10 months. Um, so I, yeah. But I honestly, I, I would, uh, don't tell my cheeses I said this, but I would, I would go back to one. I would, if, I would get as much like, creative satisfaction uh, out of one as I do two. Uh, the other thing I'll say is I can get my kicks in that way in other parts of my life, like playing music, traveling, you know, I'm, I'm into novelty and I'm, I'm into uh, new things, but um, I don't have to satisfy, you know, every craving through, through cheese. It is just cheese, you know. It's, it's nuance, you know, that's like, you know, a lost art, I feel like these days. And, and, and then I'll say one more thing, and this, don't take this as, me being smug or, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, saying what we do here is more important than what other cheesemakers do with our cheese is more interesting, you know, but the, the goal of what we do here is, you know, to be, to make world-class cheese. I mean, uh, and if you look at people making world-class cheese or wine for that matter around the world, they're pretty much only doing one thing. It's not like this, my approach is novel. Um, you know, if, if you want to do something really well, 
you probably need to focus on it for a long, long time. Why um, that's not often the case in, in the US with artisan cheese making is an interesting question. And I don't think it's because cheesemakers here who make a lot of cheeses are misguided or, you know, ADD or not good business people. I think the circumstances here are, are so different from the old world. So even just economically in terms of being able to make a living on just one type of cheese, it's not easy to, to, to do here as a small scale cheesemaker. Whereas in Europe, you, you know, tapped into a, a, an AOC situation, it's, it's different. So I, I don't think we're, I'm not saying we're any better than, than American cheesemakers who make dozens of varieties, but. But I get that because if you think about like, you know, in Italy, you have people who just focus on olive oil or tomatoes or whatever, there's a niche that they kind of like really define. And that's what makes them world-class is because they are been able to take that time to really find the best ways of doing it and whatnot. I guess it's a good thing that you were able to kind of step into that role already of, you know, Uplands already being a pretty legacy cheesemaker by the time you stepped into that role. Yeah, and I give Gingrich a lot of credit for never wavering from his vision of, you know, a single cheese. Um, he was actually, he was here in this office hanging out like maybe a couple of days before Christmas, picking up cheese and somebody else came in to pick up cheese. It was somebody from the university and that been the first time I'd ever heard Mike tell a flattering version of the story of us starting Rush Creek. And, you know, he's, he was, he was kind of grumpy, but I don't think he wanted to do it. I know he didn't. I mean, I think he had to appease his, you know, aspiring young cheesemaker, throw him a bone. Um, but, uh, you know, when I bought the farm and moved into his house and was, you know, inherited all the business files in the basement, I found his original business plan. And he, you know, just had a single-minded focus. He, he basically did everything he said he was going to do in the mid-90s with this, that he wrote in, the, in this business plan. Uh, and it was all, you know, focusing everything, the breeding of the cows, the feeding of the cows, the management of the farm, focusing everything on the one cheese, uh, which was a pretty unusual vision in Wisconsin, you know, dairy in the late 90s. He deserves a lot of credit for that. And so when I wanted to make the second cheese, he uh, didn't want to do it. And, but I, so for the first time I heard him tell kind of an affectionate story about it, which was, which was amusing, but he agreed eventually. He told me, he's like, well, you can, you know, buy some equipment, but you've got to pay it back in one year or, you know, I mean, it was, he made it difficult and, um, but it's been good good for this farm, um, the second cheese. It hasn't been great for my marriage, but. Retro. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's an all-consuming cheese. Gosh, young cheesemakers out there, if you're listening to this, don't, <laughs> don't pick a cheese like Rush Creek. Just takes too many hands on. Oh yeah, and it's uh, a lot of pieces in a short amount of time and 
it's a really difficult cheese. So many things have to go exactly right for that cheese to work and, and only one little thing has to go wrong, you know, for it to wander off course. Well, and then it's hard too, because it's like what, right before, kind of right before the holidays. So you're also juggling all of those holiday orders at the same time. Yeah, and the caves are full of Pleasant Ridge, so that work is maxed out, and it's it's a lot. Um, and as you know, I mean, we have we have to hire half a dozen people every fall uh, for that short burst. Um, and I should, you know, give a shout out to the the crew this year and last year. We're talking about how we fared through the pandemic. I mean, not only is the core crew here all the same people you know nate and eric and kim and tim but we had great incredible set of people come out last fall and again this fall which i haven't said out loud too often i don't want to sound smug because i know everybody else is just howling for labor um we could have you know could have maybe used one or two more but we had great people well, get that uh, tiny house village up on the property next door and I'll, I'll come out next year. That's actually what I was at the bank for today. We, we bought that little house right down on the road. And we're going to start a cheesemonger in residence program, open a little farm shop down there. And You heard it here, folks. First, new things at Uplands. <laughs> so um, I want to just kind of, tap your brain about just trends and movements in the cheese industry and just kind of what you think as even though we're still solidly in a pandemic um but kind of where you see things how you think things are going or what you see is going to be happening yeah well as i was kind of just explaining i haven't really thought more than six inches in front of my face for the last few months and it is only the 4th of january so i can't really expect that much out of i haven't gotten my big thinking hat on yet um and i also haven't traveled for two years but uh i do have a couple of thoughts they're not that well organized but um you know number one is what's going to happen with pre-cuts in in stores versus bulk wheels uh, a couple thoughts on that. And number two is, um, you know, how far we can take uh, like convenience and customer service, particularly through e-commerce, uh, you know, sending out pre-cut back-sealed cheese boards. Um, those are two trends I'm kind of keeping an eye on. A third one is, uh, consolidation amongst distributors not a new story um but uh that trend is not slowing down um uh so so i'll leave it with those three the first one um prepackaged cheese uh, versus bulk so uh obviously with the start of the pandemic it, it, you know everybody wanted prepackaged cheese and a lot of even small producers like us scrambled to, to make it happen. I bought my first ever, you know, vacuum sealer. 
didn't end up using it much. Um, I'm not selling um, prepackaged cheese, but I did find a, a local converter who would do it for us. I got ready to do it in case we needed it. Um, and like I said, our, our sales overall held up. So I didn't feel like I had to go that route, but um, if we end up expanding the creamery, which we probably need to do soon and, and need to find new avenues to sell more cheese, will we explore that? Um, so I, like I said, my dad was a lawyer. I always have two opposing thoughts in my head. Um, on the one hand, uh, I've become convinced doing our own trials with vacuum sealing, Pleasant Ridge, that it uh, can be better for the cheese than hand wrapping it in plastic. Um, I, I think there are advantages there. And I think there are advantages for food safety and, and proper labeling and shelf life. And, you know, I sometimes, when I'm down that train of thought, I think to myself, I wonder if, did I, have I said this to you before? I wonder if 10 years from now, we'll look back on this era and be like, remember, when we used to go through all that care to you know, raise the animals, breed them, feed them, milk them, make the cheese, age the cheese. And then we just send out whole wheels and you know, whoever, however, cut it up, served it, wrapped it, cared for it, didn't care for it. We were giving up all this control at the last step of this marathon of care and vertical integration and investment and then the other, you know, the opposing point of view is, um, you know, cheeses like ours in particular, but all, you know, high quality cheeses need mongers out there who understand them and care for them and can explain them. And that means mongers need to taste and touch and smell and think about and talk about cheese. And I, didn't do a lot of retail, but I, I did enough. And I cut my teeth when I was young. Uh, that spell right after Norway, I spent six months working at Neil's Yard Dairy. And you were expected then to taste the whole slate basically every day, 70 cheeses. And, and I learned so much from doing that. What do we lose as an industry if, if we don't, you know, if we don't have cheesemongers cutting and tasting and cheese and talking about cheese, I think we would lose a lot. So those are kind of the two conflicting cheese points. And I suppose the balance that needs to be struck is, you know, stores who have trained staff that can properly handle cheese we need them to continue doing that. And, and stores that aren't gonna make that investment maybe are better off taking pre-cuts, but I, I don't know. I mean, that's pretty simplified maybe. I think it's a totally valid thing to think about though, because as someone who did come up in the ranks at Whole Foods as a cheesemonger from behind the counter, I don't think that they necessarily, Places like that, I don't think that they have the capabilities to have the people who really care behind the counter anymore. So unless they want to throw more money towards labor, you just can't really have people who can spend that time and energy doing it. So I think that there's going to be 
in my opinion, I think there's going to be a pulling back of grocery store cheese counters like that and more of the pre-cut stuff. But I think that our more independent shops and smaller shops are going to be able to be more successful because they have more qualified people to answer the questions and be there to talk about the taste and the flavor profile and the romance, the story, all of that stuff. Cause people are going to be wanting that, but they also want the convenience of like, Oh, I can just stop in and grab it. Or I can go to this place and learn about it. I mean, t- being able to taste before you buy is, is so important. I mean, if, if I were going to having a dinner party and I was going to, you know, I'm going to go spend 60 bucks on cheese. I, I want to taste it first, you know. I think if we could buy our wine like that, well, well, you know, that, that's the ideal. I mean, Trader Joe's, they still sell a ton of cheese there and people do not taste anything like that. And there's nobody selling that cheese there, but people still go in and buy it. Yeah. And it's all by word of mouth on social media at this point. Yeah. I mean, there's like tons of like TikToks of like, here's the cheeses that I buy at Trader Joe's. So that's a, hmm. that's definitely an, an, a thing for sure. All right. Second point. Yeah. These prepackaged cheese boards. So all of us, I mean, if you had any kind of website and we have a pretty bare bones one, but, you know, got a bump in action last year and, and we sustained this year, we, we haven't really invested in it. We kind of think of it as an outlet just for people who don't live close enough to a cheese shop you know, to get our cheese. Um, but it's made me now, you know, more action on the website. I'm looking around a lot more, sorry to think more about people buying cheese, having it sent to their houses. Clearly it's the way people are buying most things. And some of the stuff I've been reading has said, you know, industry experts expect that by 2025, what 20% of grocery dollars will be spent online. Uh, I think it's currently like, wow, last year maybe it was five or something. So anyway, it's gonna grow rapidly. What's that gonna mean for cheese? I don't know. Is it going to be uh, small producers like us sending it to people's houses? We are not going to be as efficient packing and shipping cheese as distributors or Whole Foods through Amazon. So some big questions there. But one, what I brought up and is an interesting thing I just started seeing. Uh, and I, I almost ordered one. I haven't done it. You know, a cheese board, everything cut up olives, meat, cheese, back sealed, overnighted to you or sent by a two day. And the one I was looking at was Marissa's seven to 10 day shelf life. So, you know, those of us who handle these products, all these questions are going off, like, well, how close is the olive to the meat, to the cheese? Like, you know, is it getting wet? Is it getting interesting? I mean, it's how easy are we going to make it for people to to serve our products? That's about as easy as it gets. Is it going to, does it, does it have legs? Can you, is the quality there? I, I don't know. Seven to 10 days. Anyway, I think that, I think that's interesting. Um, I, I have seen some other producers doing it uh, for pickup. And obviously shops, I mean, it's a big deal, right? For independent shops, platters. Are we going to start sending those around the country? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there's also just a lot of uh, companies that have started up over the pandemic, like charcuterie board, cheese board companies have just popped up left and right everywhere. Um, but the, the, the vac sealed ones are definitely an interesting side effect, I guess. Yeah. All right. Third point that you had, I don't remember what it was now, but I don't remember what it was either. <laughs> uh, um. uh. <laughs> oh, uh, consolidation of distributors. There you go. Yeah. I mean, boy, I mean, every industry for couple of what centuries now, you know, probably cries foul when these trends happen, which they always do, of, you know, consolidation. And so I don't want to do that in, in a knee-jerk way. I mean, I run a business, I can understand there are some efficiencies of scale and, you know, dis- distribution is maybe not all about efficiency, but a large part of it is about, you know, those margins are, are tight and you've you've got to be um, efficient. You want to be moving full trucks. I mean, I, I understand all that. Um, uh, what What's that risk when these small regional distributors are purchased by large national distributors? So that one hits close to home for you guys, I know, with Provista. Um, here in the Midwest, uh, classic provisions, similar history to Provista, uh, started by a chef 20 years ago. Uh, Sally Witham, fantastic lady, uh, sold a fortune two years ago. Um, fortune also just bought Nesvigs. That's a, they might have been a hundred year old family business here in Wisconsin, mostly meat centered. Um, GFI just bought Anyata. Um, oh, I did not know that. Bob and Martina started at Venissimo. You know, they had a cheese shop first, and then uh, so you know, I have a lot. Of, I, 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 all the names I just listed are customers of ours, good customers, the buyers and the sellers. So you know, I, as far as our selfishly, I I expect the transitions to be smooth and. Um, but it's, uh, it just makes me stop and wonder. And we, we, we all ask the same thing when, uh, you know, small cheese producers are incorporated into larger businesses. What's being gained here? Is anything being lost? I don't, I'm not even, I, I don't know. I, I haven't. I don't know that there is an answer, but I think that after the last two years and watching our, uh, supply chain systems break down in pretty major ways. It's kind of scary to have like everything kind of in the same, all of the eggs in the same baskets. Um, I feel like being able to diversify and have those, having those smaller distributors has been kind of what helped things along, at least in the Pacific Northwest. I know that when we couldn't get flour and things like that at the grocery store, there were smaller companies that were kind of taking hold and we were still able to order tons of stuff from like CSAs and whatnot mm-hmm. um, because they were able to kind of flip on a dime a little bit faster and get food to people. Um, so yeah, 
there is something to be said about being a little bit scared of seeing all of this big consolidation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I suppose as a producer, you it makes you nervous to have uh, too much of your revenue uh, beholden to one or two or a few accounts. But it's up to each producer to manage that issue. Our local co-op here has a uh, comments section in the beginning, and it's, you know, people, you know exactly what it's like. People just, you know, throwing little bits about, you know, the bulk bins. And um, anyway, there was one the other day that somebody was complaining about, um, it was it was recent, so it was like maybe December. Uh, some of the f- apples were from... I can't remember if it was Australia. Washington? <laughs> yeah, they were, they were from, no, they were from another continent. And somebody's like, you know, what the hell? We've got local growers who, um, you know, have plenty of apples on hand right now. And, and the produce buyer responded by saying, you know, yes, we agree. And we do have some of these local apples. But anyway, it's, it's more energy consumptive to store these local apples through a growing season locally, truck them around on these little trucks. You know, when you grow apples in bulk somewhere else, ship them on a container in bulk, move them in a full semi. And anyway, not that that is the number one priority for food, you know, being efficient. But my point is, is, you know, scale matters and efficiency matters and, if, if some of that comes with uh, with size, then, then maybe that's something we all can benefit from. But all right, I got three last questions. How I finish things off? First one: current cheese crush. Blakesville, the the new uh, goat cheese here in Wisconsin. Lake effect. I got to enjoy some with Aaron when I was in Minneapolis, and it was delightful. Um, your favorite cheese pairing? Uh, Stitchelton or or Colson Bassett Stilton with uh, almond crackers, fig paste, and Royal Tokai, the Hungarian wine. That's Christmas every year at our house. So that's fresh in my mind. I like that. It's a little different than I was expecting you to say port because, you know, that's the classic, but I like that you switched it up. Top food memory. And it doesn't necessarily have to be about like eating food, but just, you know. Yeah. This is another one fresh in my mind from the holidays. Um, It's, you know, my, my dad uh, making fun with my dad. My parents ate a lot of fondue when I was a little kid and um, they'd lived in France and Switzerland a little bit. Um, And so I actually, I mean, I was in love with Alpine cheese from being a little kid. I used to, you know, sit there at the countertop when my dad was chunking up like Gruyere and Appenzeller and then you'd get the bit like chew on the rind. And still when I chew under like Pleasant Ridge rinds, it reminds me of that. Anyway, now he's making fondue with uh, my kids. They're like old enough to, you know, wield a knife and like learn how to do it. Um, 
So that's uh, you know, we probably had found you three times in the last <laughs> week. Um, that's delightful. That's yeah. I associate it with this time of year, and uh, yeah, feels good always. Um. Yeah. Well, thank you, Andy, for taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk with me. You're welcome. Thanks for for asking me. Uh, always an easy yes. I'm always grateful for the opportunity for Andy's time, and I'm happy to share this conversation with y'all. I hope you learned just as much as I did. This podcast is recorded, produced, and edited by me, Janae Muha. Thank you to Ben Muha for allowing me to use your music. Follow along on my cheesy adventures at Instagram, Facebook, or get more content at Patreon. My website is also a great hub for all of my goings-on. Thanks for listening, and remember to keep spreading the word of good curve.